Hello and welcome to Trigonometry. I'm Francis Foster. I'm Constantine Kissin. And this is the show for you if you're bored with people arguing on the internet over subjects they know nothing about. At Trigonometry, we don't pretend to be the experts, we ask the experts. Our brilliant guest this week is a Blue Labour trade unionist and a columnist for Unheard. Paul Embry, welcome to Trigonometry. Good to be here. It's good to have you here. The first question we always ask is just tell our guests and our viewers, uh, our viewers rather than our listeners, a little bit about who you are, what's been your journey through life, how are you here? Okay, well, I'm a firefighter by trade. Uh, I've been a firefighter since uh, since I was 22 years of age. Um, I sit on the national executive of the, the Fire Brigade Union, the FBU, uh, although I should probably make clear that some of the views I might express now may not accord with some of the views of the FBU. Oh, so I'm looking forward to this now. Uh, <laughs> that's, 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 that's an early disclaimer. Um, I've, I've been a, a trade unionist all of my adult life. I became a trade unionist at, at 16 years of age when I was stacking shelves in ASDA. Um, I'm the national organiser for trade unionists against the EU, uh, and as you mentioned, I'm a columnist for the Unheard website as well. So professional troublemaker. <laughs> That's a problem. That's a good description. That's probably a good description. Yeah. Well, it's good to have you here. One of the things we really wanted to talk to you about is the left-wing position for Brexit, because Francis and I both voted Remain. Because we're good people. I'm off. <laughs> <laughs> that is the running joke on the show. Yeah. Uh, but we've always we've always been keen to speak to people. What we try and do on the show is actually speak to people who have different views as much as we can, as opposed to just talking to people who have the same view as us. So you're a left-wing Brexiteer. Uh, hold on, let me just uh, get my milkshake. Um, <laughs> um, what is the left-wing position for Brexit? Because the reason I ask this is we've had a bunch of people on the show who are pro-Brexit. And the main criticism that we get always is why do you keep getting these right-wingers on? Brexit is all about right-wing. It's all people who hate immigrants. It's all people who you know, want to destroy beautiful diversity and progressive tolerance in this country. So you are... A trade unionist, you come from the left, you, you know, you are undeniably left wing. So make the left wing case for Brexit for us. Okay, well, until fairly recently, the, the position of opposition to the European Union was always a mainstream position on the left. It's only over more recent years that much of the left has, has turned into a bit of a fanatical club in favour of the EU. Um, so if you go back a little way, you can look at people like Tony Benn uh, and Bob Crow, the General Secretary, late Bob Crow, General Secretary of the RMT. And Jeremy Corbyn. And Jeremy Corbyn. <laughs> and John McDonnell. And, and Peter Shaw and Barbara Castle and, and real big hitters like that mm. in the, in the Labour movement uh, who were opposed to the European Union, um, predominantly because they saw it as what it is, an anti-democratic and anti-socialist institution, an institution that embeds austerity, embeds deflationary economics. Um, and, you know, the view of people on the left is that actually, as socialists, we're in favour of things like public ownership, whereas the EU is much more geared towards privatisation. Um, we're in favour of investment, even at times of, of recession and when the economy is flatlining, whereas the EU, particularly if you look at what it did to Greece, um, is much more in favour of a, a kind of neoliberal approach to these sorts of things. Um, and from the point of view of socialists, you've got to be able to elect and remove the people who govern you. That's a fundamental principle. For, it should be a fundamental principle for anybody on the left, that actually the people who are making your laws um, and the people who have a large say over your economy must be accountable to uh, the people. And in many cases, they're not. And I always remember the, the, the five questions that Tony Benn used to ask. He said, whenever he met anyone famous, he used to ask five questions. What power have you got? How did you get it? In whose interest do you exercise it? To whom are you accountable? And how can we get rid of you? Must have been a popular guy. <laughs> and that's, and, and it's that, uh, well, he became a national treasurer, of course, in the end, didn't he? Um, but, but back in his heyday in the 70s yeah. and 80s, he was, he was absolutely It was brilliant, demonized. absolutely brilliant. Um, and it's that fifth question, you know, how can we get rid of you, which goes to the heart, I think, of the debate, mm. about, the, the debate about the European Union. Um, you've got to have power over the people who ultimately uh, uh, are making your laws. And in many cases, 
directives and regulations come from the EU, uh, which the which members of parliament have no say on, and we as citizens of this country have to have to abide by. You can then get into the more technical details and, and talk about things like restrictions on state aid. So at the moment, for example, there's a huge debate around whether we should nationalise British Steel in light of the problems it's been experiencing over the last few days. Um, and actually, if you look at EU regulations, we can't do that because they they have um, because it's so in favour of market forces, they have to have what they call this level playing field. So state aid from countries which give, in their view, an unfair leg up to particular companies is wrong. And in fact, in 2016, the EU fined the Italian and Belgian governments for, for trying to rescue failing steelmakers by, by baiting them out. You've got things like the Stability and Growth Pact, uh, which um, says that member states cannot run a budget deficit of more than 3% of GDP. Now, Anyone who sort of understands economics in terms of the, the, the right approach to tackling a flatlining economy and a recession, what Maynard Keynes taught us in the 1930s is that actually you need to maintain levels of investment during a recession because if the government cuts and slashes at a time when everybody else is doing it, um, no one's going to create a recovery. So it's the government's job to, to sort of hold the line. Um, and that stability and growth pact makes it very, very difficult to do that. So in effect, they've ruled out Maynard Keynesian economics from, from the EU. Uh, and then you can look at the, you know, the mass unemployment um, that's taking place uh, across Europe. You can look at the renewed tensions that have appeared between particular company, uh, countries, Germany and Greece, for example. So all in all, this idea that the EU is some progressive, benevolent, democratic organisation, which is in favour of workers um, and in favour of, of the interests of ordinary people, is a total and utter nonsense. And, and the left-wing case was always built around some of the stuff that I just said. Um, but, but now, uh, unfortunately, so many people on the left seem to have fallen in love with it. Firstly, two questions. Why is that? Why have the left fallen in love with it? Because, you know, I'm in the comedy industry where everybody's left and woke and all the rest of it, and we're all great people and we all hold hands and all the rest of it. Number one. And number two, why is Brexit perceived as being a right-wing issue or a right-wing, you know, movement? My, my assessment of why they fell in love with it is I think if you look at the, the, the change in the Labour movement to, towards EU... Um, fanaticism, which it really is bordering on now, and away from EU scepticism, that started to take place in about the late 80s. Um, before that, as I said, an anti-EU anti position was always very much a mainstream position on the left. Um, but the, the left, and particularly the trade unions in the late 80s, had been battered by Margaret Thatcher, to be perfectly mm. blunt. Um, Trade unions had been neutered as a result of, of restrictive trade union legislation. We'd seen the defeat of the miners. Um, the Tories were looking like they could govern for a very long time. Um, and so because of that, the, the left were looking for, if you like, any port in a storm. And over the hill rode the, rode the EU. And at that time, they had sort of left-leaning bureaucrats, the like of Jacques Delors, who was an EU, uh, I think, the president of the EU Commission. Uh, and in a very... Um, significant uh, speech he delivered to the to the TUC, the Trade Union Congress, in the late 80s. He sold the idea to them of a workers' Europe, and many people on the left thought, right, we need the EU's protection as some sort of bulwark against against Thatcherism. And the truth is, it, it was just a load of tosh because the EU has never been particularly in favour of workers' rights. If you look at most workers' rights that have come about in this country. They've come, come about as a result of trade union struggles through the UK Parliament following trade union struggles. Minimum wage, trade union recognition, health and safety law, equal pay, all of that stuff was, was came about as a result of, of struggles by trade unions in this country. The question about why Brexit is perceived as a, as a right-wing project, um, I think largely because of the things I touched on, because there are so few people on the left now who articulate an anti-EU position. It's almost like we've abandoned the field to the right. So it's not surprising that if you see so many people on the right uh, who are arguing in favour of Brexit and so few people on the left, I think people will infer from that that actually it must be it must be a right-wing project. Um, but it really isn't. I mean, under the under the surface, there are trade unionists and people on the left who will put their head above the parapet sometimes and, and argue back. Um, but, you know, one of the arguments that was made to me is, is that there's no such thing 
as a left-wing exit from the EU because the Tories are in charge and there's no left-wing exit, so we should remain. To which my argument, well, there's no such thing as a left-wing remain either. You know, if you, <laughs> if you, look, at, if you look at the EU and the way that it's, it's increasingly taking democratic powers away from national governments, it's heading now for, you know, possibly for fiscal union as, as well as monetary union. Um, and if you look at the, the way that neoliberal economics are becoming more and more embedded within the, the EU's DNA, if you like, the very idea that by staying in the EU, um, you know, we're going to we're going to create socialism is a nonsense. Now, you know, I, I, I don't describe myself as a lexiteer. I don't think there is a left wing exit. Clearly, there's not. It's the Tories who are negotiating it. The Tories are going to remain in charge, at least for some time after after we leave the European Union. Um, but my view has always been that Brexit clears the path, if you like, for a radical Labour government to come along at some point in the future, hopefully, and to be free from the straitjacket of EU regulations and directives and to, to actually be radical in some of its economic uh, economic programmes. So my view is that socialism before, before Brexit is impossible. It has to be the other way around. Brexit itself isn't a panacea, but it has to be a, a, a step on the path for me. What I find interesting with this uh, Jeremy Corbyn thing, uh, him coming out, we're recording this the day after the European elections, and they'll probably go out a few weeks after. In which, uh, no doubt, Labour have stormed it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> got my vote, so... Yeah, <laughs> Clearly. Um, I, I doubt that very much. But uh, this narrative about Brexit being a right-wing thing, Jeremy Corbyn uh, yesterday tweeted, and you criticise him for this, uh, that the, the only way to stop the far right is to vote Labour. Uh, and I think what he was referring, <laughs> referring to was, you know, the Brexit party, essentially. They are the far right, when in fact... I would argue many of very many of the people who voted for the Brexit party yesterday are precisely the kind of people that the Labour Party used to represent. It's completely and utterly insane and in fact dangerous to just dismiss anybody who you don't agree with as being some sort of fascist or being on the, the far right. And my view is the way in which the terms such as fascist and, and far right and racist um, have been, frankly, completely debauched over recent years and devalued, um, means that people who actually, not that long ago, whose views would be regarded as pretty mainstream, um, so for example, wanting to leave the, the European Union, um, are now being dismissed as, 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 you know, people supporting fascism and, and the far right. And I, fi I find it genuinely disturbing that actually, you know, there are still people alive in this country who fought against real fascism, people who fought in the Second World War against real fascism. What real fascism, fascism is about is the total dominance of the state and the leadership over the people. Um, it's about government dominating every area of activity, social and economic, and you know the, the idea of the, the supreme leader, no dissent, you know, no pluralism, no room for alternative parties to, to speak out. Um, and often tinged with hardcore racism, as we saw with the with the Nazis, um, and it means white supremacism, and it means Holocaust denial, and it means jackboots, um, and it means you know people with those sort of ultra nationalist um, sentiments. The idea that people who are voting for the Brexit Party, or even the leaders of the Brexit Party, the candidates of the Brexit Party, and Whitcomb. Claire Fox, Nigel Farage. I disagree with Nigel Farage on most things. Disagree with Anne Widdicombe on most things. But the idea that, that these people are fascists in that sense or on the far right is completely bonkers. And I just think it debases our political debate. And, and it's dangerous because, you know, we, we saw just as a, an example, we saw yesterday when, as you say, the election, the European elections were taking place yesterday, we saw an old guy um, 80 years of age or something, sitting outside a polling station in Hampshire, wearing the Brexit Party rosette. Um, turns out that this guy had served in the armed forces for 22 years, uh, and he was attacked by someone throwing a milkshake or a yogurt, covering him with it, and allegedly, according to reports, screaming fascist and then cycling off. Um, now, there would be a cyclist, wouldn't there? Yeah, there it would have to be a cyclist, wouldn't <laughs> yeah. there? Yeah, lock them all up. Um, but, but, and this is this is what that sort of hysterical language leads to. Unfortunately, the, the the minute you allow a narrative to develop where anything that is, you know, mildly right wing, centre right, 
right of centre, whatever, is dismissed as being at the extreme end, then you're giving an encouragement to people to say, look, that guy sitting with a rosette, he supports fascism. Why? Because Jeremy Corbyn tweeted that we've got a vote against the far right today because other prominent figures on the left are saying we have to defeat fascism because David Lammy is calling Tory MPs Nazis because they support a no-deal Brexit. Um, that's the arena we're getting into uh, and it's sinister and people need to stand up against this sort of language because A, it's factually incorrect and just nonsense of itself uh, and B, it's dangerous. So the question I'm going to ask now is this, is that Farage is widely seen to be fascist or have links to fascism, you know, or, you know, certainly hard right parties. Is there truth in this? You know, because this, when I was talking about it online, people were like, how can you defend Farage? How can you defend Brexiteers? This is a man with links to the far right. He's mobilising a wave of hatred, all the rest of it. I mean, my assessment of Farage is that he is a hardline Thatcherite. That's my view of him. Um, I, I suspect that he was perfectly comfortable inside the Conservative Party when Thatcher was in charge. In fact, I think he was a Conservative mm, Party member so. probably yeah, around that time. Um, and he is uh, an old-fashioned Thatcherite libertarian who believes that private enterprise should pretty much run everything, believes that there should be low taxes for the rich, uh, doesn't want trade unions to to get above their station, uh, believes in rolling back the frontiers of the state, believes in small government, letting the free market rip, all of that kind of stuff. I oppose him on all of that stuff. Everything I've spoken about and written shows that I oppose him on, on all of that stuff. And in fact, just on that point, you know, you, you, you look at his, as I said, he's, he's a libertarian, really. That's his political philosophy, which is which is about small government. Government not intervening in the economy, getting out of the way and letting people run their own lives, letting private enterprise dominate, etc. In many respects, that's actually the opposite to fascism. That small state libertarianism, mm. I don't agree with it and I don't like it, but don't tell me it's fascism because fascism is about the total domination of the state over every area of our lives. Um, so no, I, I don't, I, I refuse to say that Farage is a fascist. I refuse to say that he's a racist. Um, you know, if you look at some of the, the stuff that's been going on with UKIP recently, Farage, to his credit, it has to be said, um, left UKIP when it started going in a direction where it started straying into to supporting Tommy Robinson and got Tommy Robinson uh, on board as, a, as an advisor. Um, now, I've got no time for Tommy Robinson at all. I think he's a racist rabble rouser. Um, really? Why do you say that? Well, because I think his record shows... That, that he is. And, and I'm someone who has argued, as you know, that actually you shouldn't fling the word around casually mm. if you make that accusation against someone. I think you need to be able to stand it up. I think if you look at um, Tommy Robinson, there's videos circulating of him online where he's particularly disparaging about Asian taxi drivers uh, and uses the, the word Paki in relation to what he assumes is a Pakistani taxi driver. You don't use that sort of language as far as I'm concerned if unless you harbour feelings of, of racism. Um, I think he's pretty sinister in terms of his backstory. Uh, he's been convicted of various stuff. Uh, he's, he's changed his name for whatever reason. Uh, I think he genuinely does have dubious links. So, so I've no time for, for Tommy Robinson. And, and as I said, Nigel Farage actually walked away from UKIP because of its developing relationship with Robinson. So, so, you know, yes, he's he's on. He's clearly a right wing Thatcherite Farage, um, but I, I refuse to buy into the idea of fascism and racism. And what? And where do you stand on? And I know, but I feel it's important to ask this question about the whole milkshaking thing, because I just thought it was pathetic and puerile. But there is a large swathe of the left who go, no, that is a way to deal with these people. You you mock them, you cover them in liquid, and then you and then you know you make a fool of them. Before you answer, I just I just wanted to add. I saw a a graph. I think it was from one of the the polling uh, groups in in the UK, which showed what percentage of uh, which voter group approved of milkshaking and at what level. And uh, Lib Dem and Labour voters, twenty seven percent of mm. those approved of it. Uh, it was. 6% of conservative voters, and I think overall across the country it was like 18%. So it's clearly a liberal labor yeah. thing. It's interesting, isn't it? Because the very same people who, over the last year or two, have been lecturing us about the need to tone down our language, about the need to engage in more constructive political discourse, to 
be um, fairer in the way that we talk about our politicians. Don't use words like traitor or betrayal, because if you do that, you, you know, you're raising the temperature and leaving them exposed to vulnerable attacks. Um, the people who condemned those on the street who heckled Anna Subri outside Parliament, um, the people who told us to moderate our behaviour and our language after the, 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 the terrible murder of Joe Cox, seem in some cases to be the same people now who are saying, oh, it's only a milkshake, get over it. This is political theatre. You know, these are politicians on the stump. They've got to expect a bit of criticism. Um, no, I, I think it's appalling, actually. I think it shows that you've run out of arguments. If you, if the only thing you can do to challenge um, a politician who, at this moment, arguably, is probably the, the most popular politician in the country, whether we like that or not, the only thing you can do is to, to douse him in milkshake, then actually you've probably already lost the argument. Um, and let's be honest about it, it's a way of shutting down political debate because they know that the minute they throw a milkshake over somebody, and of course the milkshake never killed anyone, we know that, and it probably is not going to injure someone. Bear but, in mind, you're saying that in Islington, there's a lot of lactose intolerant yeah, people. I, well, I've worked, I've worked here for 20 years. So I'm, I'm, uh, I, I stick out like a sore thumb. Um, but, but what it does is it drives people from the public square. So, you know, with the example of Farage being, um, being milkshaked, uh, he was immediately... I was going to say whisked away. That's a kind of uh, he, was, he was escorted away. Yeah. And um, you should use that. Um, he was escorted away. Uh, and, you know, the opportunity to speak to hundreds of people in Newcastle was taken away from him because some idiot had decided to throw a milkshake on him and that was it. He was, he was gone. And actually, my view is if, if, you're, if you're trying to do that sort of stuff, if you're trying to shut people up, if you're trying to close down public debate by physically assaulting people at the same time, as attacking others for being fascist, then you probably need to, to look in the mirror. Um, you know, I'm all in favour of politicians getting it in the neck in terms of verbal debate. Mm. Uh, I, I'm, I'm disturbed at the snowflake tendency in our country, uh, which thinks actually, you know, you, you can't be offensive, you can't push the boundaries, you can't be too critical towards people, you mustn't upset people. Politicians hold public office, um, they've got to get out there, they should do it more, they've got to get in front of people, they've got to listen to people's concerns. I'd like politicians, frankly, some of the people in Westminster to go to the town square in places like Mansfield and Stoke-on-Trent South uh, and, and, and listen to people and listen to people berating them. Um, so I'm all in favour of politicians being exposed to the public, but you draw the line at any sort of physical assault because it's wrong in principle and it shuts debate down and it's designed to shut debate down. That's well, it's a strange, do. strange world we live in where the people who advocate the sort of political violence, which I think is what it is, are the ones that call themselves progressive. I, I don't see how it's progressive to stop people from talking. What I found scary about it, <clears throat> to, to set aside the security issue where if someone can throw a milkshake on you, they can throw acid on you or whatever else it might be. The thing I find really scary about it is that essentially we are now in a position where <clears throat> I, I, well, I can't ask this question. <laughs> yeah. um, well, we're, you're saying we're we starting to justify political violence? Is that the way you're going to well, go? The, the, the thing is, what I recognize out of what happened during the EU campaign and the milkshake and all this is the people who've been running around calling everyone Nazis and fascists, which I always thought they were doing as a kind of exaggeration. They actually believe that. They mm. actually believe that they're milkshaking baby Hitler. Mm. That's what they think, mm. which is why they feel it's justified. I think, I think that's right. I think, I think people, because the, the narrative has been allowed to develop that actually, if you're on the right wing of the Tory party, for example, you're a member of the ERG group or something, then by definition, you're a Nazi and a fascist because this is what some people in the media and some people in parliament are calling you, um, then actually people will start to believe it. People who maybe not actually be aware of the real history of fascism and what it really means. I mean, I, I read a tweet a little while ago where someone someone said um, that they were living in Spain. They were a British, British citizen, but they were living in Spain. And there was a, a people's vote march in London and someone tweeted in all seriousness it was a she she tweeted that she was flying back to London to take part in this march because it was important for her to defeat fascism and that's what this government in Britain was and I thought hold on a second 
once upon a time, people from Britain went out to Spain to fight real fascism, mm. and now they're coming back to fight imaginary fascism. That, that's, that's the level of hysteria that, that the debate has reached. And I, I just sort of try and say to people on the left, look, what you need to understand is when you use this language about people, because when, when Jeremy Corbyn, for example, says vote against the far right today, People take from that that he's not just talking about Nigel Farage. He's talking about the whole of the Brexit party and anyone who might vote for the Brexit party. So people who are inclined to vote for the Brexit party, in many cases, traditional Labour voters. And in fact, I think a recent poll showed that 47% of leave supporting Labour voters, nor, Labour voters normally, were going to vote for the, for the Brexit party. So when, when you use language like that about people, do you really think you're going to win people back? Do you really think that actually you're going to win hearts and minds? When you show no inclination to understand what it is that has driven people to, to stop voting Labour, for example, and to start voting for the Brexit party, this is a party that is completely without any sort of political programme. Um, people are prepared to vote for it in their millions on this particular issue. And when you get a situation like you had during these big Brexit party rallies that have been taken, taking place over the last few weeks, where Anne Widdicombe can go to a working men's club in Featherstone in West Yorkshire, which is about as, as typical a Labour heartland as you could ever wish to, to find, a former mining town, and, you know, get applauded to the rafters and Whittacombe, you know, a, a right-wing Tory, um, when she's going to places like that and um, being embraced, then people on the left have got to understand that they've got a serious problem. I tweeted it's the equivalent of Jeremy Corbyn going to the Henley-on-Thames branch of the Women's Institute and being, <laughs> and being cheered to the rafters. Mm. It just wouldn't happen. And if it did happen, it was probably something seriously wrong with the Conservative Party if yeah. that was happening. Mm. Um, my fear is that there are actually some people in the Labour Party who don't want to, want to win those hearts and minds, who frankly do believe that large parts of what you might call the traditional working class in this country in those sort of post-industrial areas are racist and reactionary and nativist and old-fashioned, and frankly, we can do without them. And I think that attitude has probably been emboldened by the 2017 election, even though Labour didn't win it, um, it, it, it picked up large swathes of that kind of middle class remain supporting constituency and won places that traditionally it would never have won, places like Kensington and places like Canterbury. And what I say to people in the Labour Party, and I've been in the Labour Party for 25 years, what I say to people in the party, look, it's all very well, it's great to win places that you don't normally win. If you win in places like Kensington and Canterbury, great. But actually, what you need to remember is we lost places like Mansfield to the Tories, an old mining town. We lost places like North East Derbyshire, an old mining constituency. Stoke-on-Trent South, Walsall North, traditional Labour heartlands, which have been Labour since time immemorial, who, after seven years as it was at the time of Tory austerity and cuts are actually swinging to the Tories and away from Labour. And you saw a real swing to the Tories in some of those sort of post-industrial heartlands. The, 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 the C2DEs, as they're known, which is the occupational working class, um, voted Tory, a majority of them voted Tory. The middle classes flocked towards Labour, the working classes flocked towards the Tories. 61% of Labour constituencies voted for Brexit. Um, if you look at the 45 target seats in England and Wales that Labour needs to win in order to form the next government, 35 of them voted for Brexit, as did 16 of Labour's 20 most vulnerable seats. So, you know, my view is the Labour Party, if it's going to be successful again, if it's going to win power again, needs very quickly to re-engage with those heartlands which it has lost over recent years. And by demonising these people as racists and fascists, then you've got no chance of doing it. But... And just to make your point, I don't think the Labour Party are interested. And I talk to a lot of people, you know, the sort of the middle class, metropolitan elite, as they're known, who are Labour voters, and they don't seem particularly interested either. And to me, and when we had uh, Peter Hitchens on, he made the point that, you know, essentially the, this Labour Party, they don't represent them. So what you're leaving in those areas is a power vacuum in my opinion, where you get someone like the Tommy Robinsons of the world who come in and go, look, they're not listening to you, and he's right, they're not, I will. I think, I think actually 
that's broadly true. I think if you look at the if you look at the membership now of the Labour Party, the data on the membership was released about a year or so ago, um, and it showed that seventy seven percent of Labour members fall into that um, occupational middle class ABC one category. Um, many of them are sort of university educated graduates. Many of them live in the south of England. Many of them in in London. And the party, and I think it's something that predates Corbyn, by the way. Uh, you know, Corbyn's got his faults, but, you know, I think he's, he's right on a lot of stuff. I think he's absolutely right to argue against the politics of, of austerity. Um, but in terms of, of, you know, cultural connection, the Labour Party is, is losing those communities. And I think you're right. There are some people in the party who would be prepared to sacrifice them. I think if you, you know, you look at the, the Gillian Duffy thing was a big thing for me. Mm. You know, the 2010 election, uh, Gordon Brown, the then Prime Minister, was out on the stump, went to a traditional Labour heartland, Rochdale, working class constituency, was confronted by this this woman, Gillian Duffy, who had been a Labour Party supporter all of her life um, and buttonholed the Prime Minister and just expressed concern in, in, in not terribly aggressive terms by any stretch of the imagination, just uh, express concern about what was happening in a community, about the impact of rapid and large-scale immigration and the pressure on services, etc. And Gordon Brown obviously was mic'd up and and privately uh, said to someone she was just a bigoted old woman. Um, And in fact, that was what he did, is he said publicly what many people in the upper echelons of the Labour Party feel privately about those old working-class communities. I say that the Labour Party treats the working class now like some embarrassing elderly relative. Uh, it wants their votes at election time, but it doesn't want to be seen in public with them um, and, you know, is, is in many respects ashamed of them. Another example, Emily Thornberry, um, mm. MP for Islington South, where else? <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, I, I, I know... Emily very vaguely and and I like her and I respect her but she she did the uh, during I think 2014 the Rochester and Strood by-election where she was out campaigning and she saw a, a sort of modest home and there was a white van parked outside and there was a St George's flag on the on the hanging from the roof or something and she she found this so noteworthy that she felt the need to to tweet it with the caption image from Rochester. And again, it just showed a complete disconnect between the priorities of ordinary working class people, many of whom would should be tribally Labour because that's how their parents voted, that's how their grandparents voted, and the sort of, as you said, the sort of metropolitan, liberal, university-educated elite um, who just find those people a different breed and can't relate to them at all. And I think there's a real debate beginning to break out now in British politics, not before time, um, between people, including people on the left like myself, who are arguing for a return, if you like, to a more communitarian style of politics, which, you know, respects people's affinity for place and for their sense of belonging and for the concept of community and family against this, what has, what has become now the dominant ideology amongst large parts of our establishment, not just on the left, certainly on the left, but not just on the left, which is a much more sort of liberal, globalist, open borders, cosmopolitan worldview. Um, and I think it's, it's, a, it's a debate that's been encapsulated very well by David Goodhart, who's... Um, One who, of our former guests. Right. Okay. Well, I think David has, has captured the debate really well. And he's talked about how he was disowned by his North London tribe himself because he came from this sort of very liberal background. And he wrote some years ago about the impact of mass immigration in working class communities and how the liberal establishment just didn't understand that people's um, concern about it wasn't driven by racism or hostility to migrants, but was just driven by the disruption and the violation that you know, very large movements of people were causing to to their their sort of sense of place and their sense of, of belonging. And he's written about how we've got, um, in a book particularly called The Road to Somewhere, how we've got a governing class in this country, which is part of what he calls the anywhere breed, which comes from this very liberal, globalist, cosmopolitan, university-educated background, um, who make up about 25% of the population, but actually exert 
a much greater uh, influence well beyond their numbers across the political debate, across political discourse, across our institutions, our governing institutions. And the somewheres who make up about 50% of the country, the rest are in between, calls them in betweeners, but the somewheres who make up 50% of the country who are on lower wages, who are often in poorer housing, who have, you know, fewer skills, less opportunity in life, um, who are much more likely to be impacted by things such as free movement in terms of the impact on their wages and local services, etc. Um, and it's these people who increasingly feel disenfranchised and disconnected from the from the political system. And those people are crying out for a much more communitarian approach to society. Uh, and these are generally people, as I say, who um, are are not opposed to immigration. And in fact, you know, my view is that we are still in this country, despite what some people say, we are still one of the most tolerant countries in the world. Most, most people are open to the idea of immigration, and rightly so. They just want the thing to be managed properly. They don't want a situation where you have open borders, where a government says, you know, we've got free movement, and invariably newcomers will gravitate largely to, you know, already hard-pressed working-class communities where the property might be cheaper, etc. Um, and just the, the governing class says to people, well, it, it, it's great. This is cosmopolitanism. This is multicultural, multiculturalism. And we'll probably be better off in terms of GDP. So just accept it. Just get on with it. Actually, I think it shows a profound misunderstanding of the priorities of working class people. The idea that they are prepared to see a fundamental change and, and rupture to their local community as a result of globalization and open borders simply because they might be a tenor, a tenor a week better off. Uh, it's almost a Thatcherite argument saying mm -hmm. the economy comes before everything. Mm -hmm. The economy comes before your sense of belonging, before your sense of place. And what they've done um, through doing this is they've toxified the entire argument about immigration. So, you know, whereas most people, uh, I think, are happy to have immigration, uh, just want the thing managed properly and are tolerant and say, look, once migrants are in the country, they should be tr treated equally. They should be given fair access to jobs. They shouldn't be exploited. We should oppose any sort of racism. Um, the debate has now gone to the extreme where if you say you're opposed to open borders, people on the left here, oh, you're an anti, you're an anti, you're anti-migrant. You know, you're yeah. some reactionary, some nativist. That's the level. Of, and I deal with these people every day. I deal with them <laughs> in my union. I deal with them through social media. They are not open to a serious, nuanced debate around this issue. 100%. They, see, they see things, dare I say, entirely in black and white. Yeah. Um, and as an immigrant, just let me just add this. Uh, you know, I completely agree with everything that you said. Uh, the 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 one thing I we, we were talking before we started the interview that that really pissed me off actually during the Brexit campaign was this country and the people of this country being smeared as racist xenophobes when I know for a fact in my own experience and many people that I, I know who are immigrants in this country would tell you as I told you this is one of the best places in the world to be an immigrant but you're right, I think, that there is a section of the left that has gone so far off the deep end. I mean, you look at America, uh, someone like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez talking about how if you, want, if you don't want open borders, <laughs> that makes you racist, mm. or having an immigration mm. system is racist. And you just go, these people are insane. I mm. mean, and you must be tearing your hair out because, I mean, I don't really see how with that trend that you're talking about happening within labor, I don't see how Labour's ever going to win back the the working class vote ever again. It's going to be it's going to be very difficult, frankly. Um, and I mean, just on your point about tolerance, um, one thing that struck me is is after just after the EU referendum in 2016, the Sunday Times, I think it was, ran a poll um, where they asked people whether EU nationals who were in the country before the referendum should be allowed to stay post referendum. And what that poll showed is that 77% of leave voters, leave voters said, yes, people who were here before the referendum from the EU should be allowed to stay. Um, and that's my experience of speaking to leave voters, that they're motivated by a fundamental sense of fair play and not by racism. Uh, and the picture that's been painted of them as people who just want closed borders and people who, I mean, Vince Cable said the leave vote was driven by people with a hankering for nostalgia and empire and they don't like non-white faces around the place and they want to see blue passports. A complete caricature. The leave vote was driven by people who wanted 
self-government and sovereignty and a return to the spirit of community uh, and democracy and belonging and those sorts of things. And the interesting thing, actually, is that since the referendum, those things have hardly been discussed in a lot of the public debate. The things that actually drove the vote, um, including, you know, control over immigration, much of that has just been dismissed. And what we've had instead is a very kind of dry technical debate about the customs union and the single market and the Irish border. All of that stuff's important. Of course it is. But the idea that people went into the polling booth and said, you know, I'm, I'm against the customs union. I'm going to I'm <laughs> going to vote. Leave, fundamentally misunderstands why people voted so many in, in such large numbers in the way they did. And in fact, in many ways, um, um, in many cases, people voted for the first time in their lives because I think people would sense that in in general elections, they felt they couldn't get fundamental change in general elections. That actually, on some of the on some of the key issues, um, such as EU membership, for example, uh, the parties, the mainstream parties, were all of a piece. And what's the point in voting in general elections because they're they're all the same? We're going to get the same sort of government, whatever happens. I think with the EU referendum, um, actually, what they saw was here was an opportunity to put a missile through the political and economic system to really disrupt the, the status quo and to say to the establishment, look, you forgot about us and this is the punishment that you're now going to get for forgetting about us. And in many respects, you know, I've argued that in many ways it wasn't necessarily just an, e an anti-EU vote. It certainly was an anti-EU vote, but it wasn't driven just by opposition to the European Union, less still was it driven by opposition to the, the continent of Europe. And people often conflate the two, don't they? they? They say if you're against the EU, you're against Europe. Actually, the, the two different things. Um, what it was in many respects was a, a vote against the political establishment in this country. You know, the people saw, people saw all of these people lining up, the mainstream political parties, Cameron, Osborne, um, arguing you know the banking industry and and you know the cbi and people like that big business who they felt had actually made their lives difficult over recent years and were in many respects responsible for their predicament and were now desperate for their vote and people thought actually no i'm not going to vote the way that you want i'm going to do this because you've forgotten about me and this is this is the lesson that you're going to get um and it was i've likened it in some ways to um to a general strike um we haven't had one in this country since 1926. Not that some of us haven't been trying to work towards <laughs> it. Um, but we, we haven't had a general strike since 1926. But it was like a general strike in the sense that people, I think people knew that if they voted leave, it would create some turbulence in the country, certainly in the, in the short term. And probably accepted that it might hit them in the pocket a bit again in the short term. There's, there's a debate about whether Brexit will, uh, will will be better economically in the long term. But I think people felt that, you know, some of the disruption to the money markets, whatever, might make us poorer in the short term. But it was a price they were prepared to pay mm. because they knew it was the only weapon that they had and possibly might ever get in their lifetime to make their political masters sit up and take notice. Very similar to workers going on strike. And I say that as a trade unionist. You know, you know if you go on strike, you're not going to get paid you're going to get hit in the pocket. You know it's going to disrupt operations. You know you're going to be attacked for it. But you sometimes feel that actually that's a price worth paying because in the long term, it might lead to a better working environment. It might lead to better conditions inside the workplace. Uh, and that's what people felt. They knew that it was going to create disruption, but equally they knew they had to make their political masters sit up and take notice. And the really interesting thing is they still aren't sitting up and taking notice. You know, the, 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 the political establishment in this country um, in large parts, he's doing everything it can to subvert the vote. And actually, people voted Leave because they felt the political establishment had stopped listening to them. And that political establishment has spent the last three years proving them right um, and trying to undermine the, the, the vote. And my fear is that actually, if you do block Brexit or if you have a second referendum, the forces it would unleash in this country from people who say, right, you know, you've, you've shut off any democratic mechanism I've got for expressing my view or for affecting change. You're now leaving me with no other option but to take to, to take to the streets and I always say to people look democracy is like a pressure relief uh, pressure relief valve if you shut that off the pressure doesn't go away it just breaks out elsewhere and that's the danger of, of subverting the vote mm. the one story that I always use about um, brexit as to why brexit voters aren't racist I remember in 2016 
I got a, a cab from one gig to another, and the cab driver who drove me was a black cab driver who was, he was a black guy. And we were talking about it, and he goes, I'm going to vote leave. And I said, that's interesting, why? And he went to me, it's because they, the government don't want me here in London. And, I, and he went, I'm not saying that they don't want me here because I'm black, it's because I'm an ordinary working person. They don't want me here, they don't want you here. They want this to be like Paris and that they have all the liberals, all the very wealthy people in the centre, and the rest of us can travel in. Well, it's, it's really interesting, because if you look at the data from the referendum, I mean, if you listen to the media and to liberal commentators and some of the mainstream politicians, you would think that every person from uh, a minority ethnic background voted Remain. And in fact, the data shows that about a third of BME voters voted Leave. And in some cases, if you drill down a bit more, you see that some of their motivation was opposition to free movement. Mm. And because they, many of them had come from the Commonwealth in the 50s and 60s um, and felt that actually EU free movement was unfair because it gave a leg up to predominantly white people who were European. Whereas if you're a nurse from India or something or the West Indies, you have to jump through more hoops. So there was this sense that there was a profound unfairness about EU free movement amongst, you know, that section of, of the BME community. Um, and if you look at, you know, if you look at some of the, the data, if you look at some of the towns and cities with high BME populations, places like Slough and Bradford and Birmingham, they all voted by majority leave. So, so the idea that, and, and again, it's totally patronising to suggest that black and minority ethnic people can only vote Remain because obviously, you know, Brexit voters are all racist and they couldn't line up with them. I mean, my, my own in-laws um, are Anglo-Indian. My wife's Anglo-Indian. Her family uh, came from Calcutta back in the 1960s. Um, and many of them voted Leave because actually they look at the country. I mean, I was speaking to my mother-in-law about this recently. She looks at the country she arrived in in the 1960s. And of course, there was there was lots of racism around much more so than than today. Um, but actually, they they developed a fondness for, for the country um, and they became settled in the country um, and they established their home in the country. Uh, and in her case, she didn't like the way that the country is being managed and didn't like any more than other working class people the way that the country has been thrown to the four winds around globalisation and, and the way that it's now dominated by people with this sort of liberal globalist worldview. Um, so she was very much in favour of, of voting leave. So, so we do need to challenge this myth that people from a minority ethnic background are, are, are by, by default must be remain voters. It's completely It's an wrong. interesting thing on the economy as well because I remember I, I host things every year at an economics and comedy festival where they get comedians to host discussions between economists, politicians, etc. And I remember this on your point about everything being about money, everything being about the economy. There was an economist there who kept talking about the fact that the community communities that will be hardest hit by the economic impact of leaving the EU will be the, precisely the ones that voted for it. And I kept saying to him, I, I hear what you're saying, but they know that mm. uh, and they voted to leave anyway. Uh, people quite often prepared to accept an economic hit if they get something else that's more important to them. Mm. And, I, and he just kept ignoring that question. I kept putting to him over and over and eventually just threw his hands up and well, well, I'm an economist, so that's what I'm going to talk about. It's, it's a very sort of dry scientific way of looking at what is, in many respects, a much more human debate around what drove people to, to, to vote leave. Um, and yes, you know, as I said earlier, it's, it's a fundamental misunderstanding of, of working class people. You know, the idea that they are driven just by this Thatcherite philosophy that it's all about the economy. It's all about whether we can make a fast buck out of something. Just because people at the top might see things that way, uh, it doesn't mean that people at the bottom do. And I despair sometimes when I hear Labour MPs say, well, nobody voted to be poorer. Well, as I said, first of all, there's a debate around whether Brexit will make people poorer or not. I think it's an opportunity actually to be a lot more radical with the economy when we're free from the from the EU and actually to, to weight the economy much more in favour of, of working class people. Um, but actually, aside from that, how do they know that people didn't vote to be poorer? As I said before, people going on strike. I've been on strike three times in my career as a firefighter. I knew that certainly in the short term, I was going to be poorer every time. I was I was going to you know not be paid. It was going to be harder that month to to pay the mortgage, 
but it was absolutely right in my heart what I was doing because I was I was fighting for better pay or I was trying to defend my pension or I was challenging the you know the government trying to make cuts in the fire service and all of those things outweighed you know the short term impact on my pocket and for the vast majority of firefighters who went on strike on those occasions uh, they had exactly the same sentiment. So I say to people, just be careful about saying that nobody voted to be poorer. Because if you believe that, then effectively what you're doing is just dismissing working class people as being motivated entirely by money. And, and that was why Thatcher approached the economy in the way that she did, because she thought that was all that people were interested in. Of course, you know, having money takes this thing out of being poor, as someone once <laughs> said. But, but actually, for, for many working class people, that sense of place, that sense of belonging, that sense of community, the, the, the principle of self-government, the principle of sovereignty, uh, the principle of being able to control your own borders um, and being able to resist you know, the, the onslaught of globalization and deindustrialization, that actually means a hell of a lot to people. Uh, and it's something that money can't buy. Paul, I'm going to ask you quite a difficult question now, and I apologise for this. We had uh, Dr. Steve Davis on, uh, a brilliant interview. If you haven't seen it, check it out, uh, from the Institute of uh, Economic Affairs. And he said that what Brexit is is a catalyst for the death of two-party politics. Do you think what we're witnessing now with Corbyn and the way they're abandoning their working-class heartlands as a slow death of the Labour Party, in a sense there might be a new movement or a new party like the SDP coming forward representing the working class? I think it's possible, um, but I think we've, we've been here before, maybe not in such a serious way, but I think as a nation we've been here before where it looks like another party may break through. It looks like the death of two-party politics. You could think, for example, in the early 80s when the, the sort of old SDP broke away from the Labour Party and there was a surge in the polls and they did really well in by-elections. And then before too long, everything kind of went back to, to normal. Um, but I do think there's probably more chance of it now simply because I think there is, and I think this has probably been a consequence of the referendum that tribal loyalties as they were are breaking down more and more uh, i think if you look back to the 1980s you know working class people by and large voted labor because they knew that the labor party represented them spoke for them even if they didn't always agree with it even if they didn't always like its leader the Labour Party speaks for the working class. The Tories speak for the, for the rich and the bosses, and we have to be Labour. You know, my my dad was Labour, my grandparents were Labour. That was people's motivation. It was very tribal for people. I think now that tribalism is wearing away, and because of the referendum, people felt able to vote Leave, for example, whilst knowing that they weren't helping the enemy, the Tories, because you know there were Tories who were lining up for Remain and Leave. There were Labour people lining up for Remain and Leave, probably less so Leave. Um, but they felt able to vote that way without thinking, I've betrayed my class, I've betrayed my parents, you know, they've always voted Labour. And I think increasingly with the, the way that Labour is becoming this, this kind of bourgeois, um, metropolitan, liberal, um, very sort of youth-obsessed, London-centric party, um, there are people in the country who are looking at the Labour Party now and thinking, that party just does not want me. That party is ashamed of me. Um, that party speaks for a different type of person now and wants a different type of person. Uh, you know, someone with any sort of traditional views around, you know, if you like, small C conservative views which many working class people have got. You know, this hmm. small C conservative thread runs through working class communities in terms of their approach to issues like the, the family and their affinity for their country, patriotism, their approach to things like crime and immigration, things that are completely dismissed as reactionary and, and right wing. But these people who, who have these traditional views, there was never any inconsistency between holding those views and being a proud Labour Party supporter. And the Labour Party, once upon a time, wanted those people. Nowadays, we talked about Duffy, we talked about Rochester. Nowadays, the Labour Party is embarrassed by people like them. And I think the danger, which comes back to your question, is that actually you do leave those people open to the forces of the right. You leave those people open to the, the forces of populism. And I've got to say, I think it's something that isn't just happening in Britain. You can look at look at the Rust Belt in America, where they voted for, for Trump in such large numbers. 
You look at the Gilets Jaunes movement in France where people have got together and said, actually, we want to fight for greater democracy, for economic justice, for national sovereignty. They've been completely ignored by the left in Britain, by the way. The internationalist left in Britain, which will support every international struggle by workers elsewhere because it's the right kind of struggle. But the Gilets Jaunes, you know, don't quite tick the right box. Um, and you see throughout Europe the rise of of you know, what some people would dismiss of nationalist movements. But I, th I think actually, if you just dismiss them as populist nationalist movements, you know, reminiscent of the 1930s, you're making a grave mistake because in the 1930s, that kind of ultra-nationalism was a very expansive, aggressive nationalism. Uh, it was about dominating other countries, about invading other countries. Nowadays, the nationalist movements in Europe are just about defending their own space. They're not interested in going elsewhere. They just want to defend their community and their culture and their, you know, democracy, etc. Uh, and that's why, unless we try and win the hearts and minds of those people, then they are going to be, sus you know, they, they, they're going to be potentially drawn by forces, uh, forces of the right and by other populist movements. Uh, and it's going to be very difficult to win them back after that. We've got about five minutes left, Paul, and I wanted to ask you something completely different to what we've been talking about, which is just to tell us, you've talked a lot about austerity and obviously you're a former firefighter and you work, you still work in that area. What, given what we've seen in this country over the last eight to 10 years, what is the, the state of the fire service in this country? Well, this, this is really an unwritten story. It should be getting much more coverage than it is. The, 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 the fire service in this country is being absolutely decimated. It's being decimated as a result of 10 years of austerity and people are paying for it with their lives. That's, that's, I mean, that's not scaremongering. We're, we're seeing now um, a, a rise in some places in the number of deaths from fire. We're seeing a rise uh, across England in terms of response times, in terms of the time it takes a fire engine to get to the scene of a fire. Those response times are at their worst for 20 years. Um, we've seen huge cuts from the government. We've seen 12,000 firefighters' jobs go over the last decade. That's a you know, huge number of frontline firefighters taken out of action. Uh, we've seen scores of fire engines close up and down the country. Um, and we've seen a cut of government funding to, to the fire service uh, of about a third over the course of that time. Um, and it's a really, really serious situation because, you know, the behaviour of fire doesn't change over time. Fire is just as much a threat now to people as it ever is. And the argument that the government used to defend, uses to defend the cuts, well, there's been fewer fires over the last 10 years, you know, which, which there has. But actually, you can't base a fire service around the principles of supply and demand, it has to be done on the basis of risk. The supply and demand argument, for example, would say, well, you shut the fire station at Heathrow Airport because there hasn't been a serious incident there for the last, you know, God knows how many years. We don't use it, just shut it. Well, you, no one would do that because it's about whether or not you've got the resources in place to be able to deal with the risk should something happen. And that should be the the, the approach to fire cover generally across the country. So, you know, it's a, it's a real important issue because people's lives are at stake as a result of it and, uh, and people need to hear about it. And what's the morale like in the fire service? I mean, it's really tough at the moment because, you know, firefighters feel that they're fighting a constant rearguard action. They're, they're trying to defend their service against cuts from, from the Tories. Um, they're trying to defend their pensions. Um, the Tories tried to rip up their, their pensions and there's been a, you know, a struggle over many years to try and defend that. Um, we haven't had a decent pay rise in the fire service for the best part of a decade, uh, even though the fire service does a lot more work in terms of the broad range of work than it's ever done before. Um, we do a lot of work in the community now. We're not just about racing to fires when they happen. We go out to people, we, we do fire safety work, we teach them about uh, about the dangers of fire, etc. We fit smoke alarms in, in people's houses to make, to make sure they're as protected as possible. Um, but we've, we've seen really paltry pay increases over the last 10 years. And I know people who have left the service and gone off to be train drivers because the pay is better in that industry. Uh, and it's completely unacceptable. You know, firefighters put their lives on the line every day to defend their communities. And all they ask is to be treated fairly, to be fairly paid and to, to, to make sure that they have the right equipment and resources in place to, to do their job. And it's not happening. And that obviously impacts on morale in a big way. And uh, as a former teacher, I can, the teaching profession is the same. 
Although we do tend to go on strike far more than you yeah, like. Yeah. We love a strike in the teaching profession. Yeah, also, you don't risk your life. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, well, in, in the London, to be yeah, fair, yeah. Yeah. I used risk to teach in you and mate. I risked my life yeah, every I, single day. I went day. to school in Dagenham. You don't risk your life. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you. All right. Well, we're out of time. So we've got one more question for you, man. Uh, what is the one issue that no one is talking about that we should be talking about as a society? I think a big issue, controversial, but it needs to be said, uh, well, we are called trigonometry. <laughs> well, there we go. So I'm in the right place to say it. Um, I think what I would describe as the abolition of womanhood, to be perfectly honest, I think we are seeing uh, an attack on womanhood and women's rights um, through uh, a uh, an approach which seeks to abolish the sexes in some way um, by saying that people now can effectively just self-identify as whatever sex they want and that society has to accept that and the law has to accept that um, and that if you don't accept that then you're some sort of bigot and some sort of reactionary uh, and I find it extremely sinister I have to say um, and I'm very much in favour of people living the lives that they want you know, if they're not hurting other people, I'm perfectly happy for people to identify as they want, to dress as they want, to worship who they want, to eat what they want. Um, but when the government intervenes and says that someone, for example, who is a man, has the anatomy of a man, can wake up one morning and identify as a woman and potentially uh, have access to women's safe spaces because the law interprets that person as a woman, uh, and any, anyone who doesn't accept that interpretation um, could be could be arrested and prosecuted. Uh, I find it pretty Orwellian, to be honest. And it's almost like we're now saying that there isn't a definition of woman. And I say to people who challenge me on this, define woman for me. And they get into all sorts of muddles because they can't, because they know if they did, they would have to accept that actually, you know, the sexes are different. Um, and I know many decent women who have been on the right side of equality struggles throughout their entire lives, who are really seriously concerned at this and have said, well, hold on a second, we didn't fight for years to, you know, get advances in terms of women's privacy and dignity and security in public spaces and workplaces, etc. only for you to effectively come along now and say, well, there's no difference between the genders and you're entitled to use each other's facilities and you have to treat this person as a woman even though he's got the anatomy of a man. Uh, I find it disturbing. I find it sinister. I find people try to close down the debate on it um, just by shouting accusations at you when you try to, to discuss it. Uh, and it's not for those reasons, in many respects, it's not being spoken about as much as it ought to be. And it's a debate that needs to be had. Well, it's a, it's a good point. And let's dig into it for a couple of minutes, Francis, because I don't want to just leave it hanging. We've had a few people on the show and, and talk to them about it. And we've also had a transgender woman on the show, we had India Willoughby uh, on the show to talk about this. So let's dig into it because I hear that argument a lot. And I have to say instinctively, I agree with it. But the argument about women's rights being taken away by having this, the, the one safe space that people often talk about is bathrooms, right? And there are two issues I would, I would kind of pick up there. Number one, the easy solution is just to have cubic, cubicles for everybody, then it's not an issue. And the other thing is, if you were a, a sex offender, a male sex offender who wanted to get into a woman's bathroom, you can do that without self-identifying as a woman now anyway, right? So I don't really, uh, give, give us a bit more on where you think this is something that has an impact on women's rights. Well, I think in terms of the example you use, if someone tried to do it now, mm. they could walk through the women's, into a women's I've uh, done it a bathroom. couple of times by complete accident. <laughs> yeah, I, I've heard the rumours. <laughs> you, could, you could sort of go into... And thus ends the show. <laughs> you could go into the, the women's bathroom, but actually, um, you know, you, you, you could be challenged and you could say, someone could say, actually, you've got no place in here, you should go. Mm. I think if you if you say effectively there's no difference between the, the sexes and people should be entitled to and there's a debate about whether people would be entitled to uh, trans people would be entitled if they self-identify to use the spaces of, uh, of the other sex um, and the fear is that if they do then actually you can't challenge them because if you do you're discriminating mm. against that person and even if the government does say well we are going to preserve 
you know, safe spaces, there will be exemptions in terms of bathrooms, etc. What we're seeing is a creeping acceptance among institutions, um, you know, firms, etc., that because they don't want to be accused of discrimination, then they just let it happen anyway, even if they did have the right under law to say, well, no, this is an exempt safe space. So there was a story recently, Topshop in London, um, where I think somebody tried to access either the women's fitting rooms or the women's toilet or something. Um, and Topshop would have been within its rights under law to say no, but just completely capitulated when there was this Twitter storm saying that you're discriminating against people. Um, and I, I just I just think it's... it's, uh, And I think sometimes you have to think personally. I mean, I've, I've got a young daughter. Uh, would I want my young daughter to be in a changing facility with somebody who had the anatomy of a man but identified as a woman? No, absolutely not under any circumstances. And I would challenge anybody who said that I should have to accept that. I mean, I, I totally accept that people who are having you know, a personal crisis around their, their gender and their identity need compassion and people should be sympathetic towards those people and understanding towards those people. But it shouldn't extend to effectively saying that there isn't such a thing now as sex, as biological sex. You know, it, it, it's it's kind of disappeared and we are who we want to be. And society just has to pick that up and run with that. I think that has really disturbing implications. And on that non-controversial note, <laughs> we shall end it. We shall end the interview. Uh, if people want to find you online, Paul, what is, where is the best place to find you? What's your Twitter or um, the rest of it? My, my Twitter is uh, Paul Embry, as yeah. in my name, Paul Embry. Um, I'm pretty active on Twitter. Um, I write a column for the Unheard website from time to time. So go on the Unheard website. You can see some of my stuff there and, and disagree with it and um, or agree with it, you might. And so those are probably the two best places mm. to go to. Yeah, but uh, Paul is very active on Twitter. I follow him with great interest. As always, follow us. Um, I just wanted to give a shout out to a couple of people. We've had a couple of uh, PayPal donations from people who I will not name because we don't want the names to be tarnished in public by association with us. But thank you very much, guys. You're really making us, uh, giving us an opportunity to keep the show going. And buy soup. Soup? <laughs> yeah. Do you eat soup? Yeah, of course I eat soup. Soup and soy, that's you, man. <laughs> soy lattes for Yeah, you. hence 10 comments now about yeah. how I'm a soy boy. Carry on. What do you have in your in your tea? What do I have in my... It's not, it's not the point, mate. That is the point. <laughs> Every I, time we go to a fucking restaurant, do you know what Francis does? He goes, have you got any non-milk alternative... Non, uh, I don't speak non -dairy. like that. Yeah, I don't speak true, like that. True. Have you got any non-dairy alternatives, mate? <laughs> There's nothing wrong with almond milk latte. <laughs> I'm just soy shaming you. Yeah. Anyway, follow us on all the social media at TriggerPod. Uh, click the bell button next to the subscribe button if you haven't already subscribed. And uh, we'll be back next week with another episode where I will shame Francis for something else. Absolutely. Uh, leave us a review on iTunes. Tell everybody that you can about it, all the rest of it. Constantine, you're a donut. What have you forgotten to promote? Oh, yes, I am doing my Edinburgh show uh, in August. It's called All Well That Ends Well. You can buy tickets. Uh, there's a trailer on my Twitter profile. Francis will be doing a couple of shows here at the Bill Murray in London, here in London at the Bill Murray as well. Check that out. In late August. Yep, so come and see me then. Uh, yeah, and thank you guys for watching the show. Is there anything else you wanted to say? No one's listening by this point. No, no it's true. Everybody is switched <laughs> yeah, off. Well, to, to three people. Uh, thank you for listening, and we will see you next week. Bye-bye. Before you go, consider joining our exclusive member feed. As a member, you'll get ad-free and extended interviews. Click the membership link in the podcast description or find the exclusive episodes link on your podcast listening app to join us.